You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The reading for this morning's sermon is Acts 23, 1 through 11. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. If a spirit or an angel spoke to him, what then? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we need you to work this morning. We ask that you would take the truth that has been declared through the songs and the scripture reading and the prayers and now the truth that will be declared from your word and that you will form us and shape us into who you want us to be so that we can accurately reflect your glory. We pray also that you would take this truth and you would comfort those in need of comfort that you would convict those in need of conviction. I pray that you would guide all of us according to your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> in his book called The Insanity of God, Veteran missionary Nick Ripkin tells the story of a man he calls Pastor Dimitri. 
Pastor Dmitri was a Russian pastor who experienced intense and horrific persecution during the communist reign. Ripken records that when God began to unusually bless Pastor Dimitri's congregation and it began to grow numerically, uh, Dimitri was forcibly taken from his home. He was separated from his wife and children, and he was put in a prison almost 600 miles away from them. Pastor Dimitri would spend the next 17 years in prison. And for those 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed. He would face the east, raise his arms in praise to God, and and then he would sing a, a heart song to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Uh, Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. Sometimes they threw food. Other times they threw human waste. Anything to get him to stop. But friends, there was something else that Dimitri would do. Every time he found even the tiniest scrap of paper, he would take it. And with either the nub of a pencil or a small piece of charcoal, he would write down every Bible verse, every scriptural story, and every song that he could remember. When he finished, he would walk to a concrete pillar in his cell where there was a constant drip of water, and he would take the paper fragment and reach as as high as he could, and he would stick it to the damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Now, whenever one of the jailers would spot the piece of paper, they would take it down. And when they saw what was on it, uh, Dimitri would be severely beaten and even threatened with death. But day after day, Dimitri would sing his song, and every time he found a scrap of paper, he would fill it with scripture and he would stick it to the damp pillar in his cell. This went on year after year after year. Dimitri's guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did unspeakable things to his family. At one point, they even led him to believe that his wife had been murdered and that his children had been taken by the state. So one day, Dimitri's resolve finally broke. He told God that he could not take any more. He admitted to his guards, declaring, You win. I will sign any confession that you want me to sign. I must get out of here and find my children. The prison guards told Dimitri that they would prepare his confession that night and he would sign it the next day. The document would say that he was not a believer in Jesus and that he was a paid agent of Western governments trying to destroy the USSR. Once he put his signature on that dotted line, he would be free to go. Dimitri recalled that that very night, as he sat on his jail cell bed, he was in deep despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. He explained to Ripken that God then did something miraculous. 
God allowed Dimitri to hear the prayers of his family as he sat in his cell that night. Well, this emboldened Dimitri, and when the guards showed up the next day, he refused to sign the document. Instead, Dimitri smiled and told them, In the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. I know now that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that they are still in Christ. I'm not signing anything. Well, Dimitri's persecutors continued to discourage and silence him, but he remained faithful. One day he received a special gift from God's hand. Ripken writes, in the prison yard, he found a whole sheet of paper. And God, Dimitri said, had laid a pencil beside it. Dimitri went on, I rushed back to my jail cell, and I wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story, every song I could recall. I knew that it was probably foolish, Dimitri said, but I couldn't help myself. I filled both sides of the paper with as much of the Bible as I could. I reached up and stuck the entire sheet of paper on the wet concrete pillar. Then I stood and looked at it. To me, it seemed like the greatest offering I could give Jesus from my prison cell. Of course, when my jailer saw it, I was beaten and punished. I was threatened with execution. And friends, there is far more to this story. But God miraculously intervened again. And sometime later, Dimitri was unexpectedly released from prison and was reunited with his family. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps his promises even when we are weak and defeated like Dimitri. And we're ready to give up. It is God. And God alone who strengthens and upholds his children. Whether you're a persecuted pastor in a corrupt country or an apostle in the early church. Or a struggling believer in Minnesota. The words of the prophet Isaiah to the people of God are still true. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now let me warn you, brothers and sisters, not to respond to examples of God's faithfulness to Pastor Dimitri or to the Apostle Paul by comparing your circumstances to theirs and then becoming discouraged. Saying things like, well, my problems are nothing compared to theirs. Why would God care about something so insignificant as what I'm dealing with? If that's how you tend to think, then listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And don't read that as a rebuke, but read it as a tender reminder. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father, listen, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. It's with this hope. I I wanted to take more time to establish how to listen to the text this morning. It's with this hope in mind that we move into this morning's text. Listen, the hope that the hearts of every believer will be encouraged by encountering the faithfulness of God. So let me begin by drawing your attention to the crowd's response to Paul's Defense. Look back at the end of chapter 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. If you remember, he was establishing that he was a faithful Jew. He was a transformed sinner. He was a commissioned witness. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. There are three words I want to give you, and they will serve as road signs along the path of our study this morning. Here they are. Rejection, confrontation, declaration. Rejection, confrontation, declaration. The response of the crowd to Paul's passionate defense is total rejection. And so, friends, here's what I want you to see. In the face of rejection, God sustains his servant. In the face of rejection, God sustains his servant. Now, it's important for me to qualify this. I'm not making a sweeping and undefined statement about a kind of generic rejection, though as a child of God, and I've already mentioned this, As his child, God does care about you in all of your circumstances. But here in our text, Paul is being rejected because of his faith in Jesus. The gathered crowd believes that Paul has blasphemed and they they want him to be put to death. In fact, the actions Luke records in verse 23, shouting, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dirt into the air. All of these in one way or another are communicating their their disassociation with and judgment of Paul as someone who in their minds opposes the will of God 
and he's no longer a true Jew. This is a, this is a strong response. In fact, again, this is a total rejection. And if you think about this, this is both a, a frightening and a heartbreaking scene. Paul's life really is hanging in the balance. Right? Usually when someone says, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live, that's, this is not a good sign. But I want you to see also that his defense has been rejected. And, and as the crowd rejects his defense, they're also ignoring the gospel. So this is, this is heartbreaking as well. Look at verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. The people have spoken, and the tribune orders Paul to be flogged and interrogated. And I want you to hear what this practice involved. Someone suspected of doing wrong would be whipped with strips of leather. Each strip had small pieces of bone or metal attached to it. The prisoner was whipped as a means of breaking him down and bringing him to the point of confessing something, anything. One historian refers to the whip used in a scourge as a murderous instrument of torture. Every time we've come to a point like this in our study through Acts, I've found myself stopping and being reminded of the humanity of the early church members. And then giving thanks for their faithful and courageous witness in the face of incredible opposition and unspeakable danger. But scenes like this also remind me that this kind of persecution is still happening all over the world. Just because this is not our experience, brothers and sisters, doesn't mean it's it's not the experience of the vast majority of Christians around the world. And so, Redeemer, I, I hope, even when we study a text like this, I hope it reminds us and convinces us again, renews our commitment to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, that we would ask God to sustain them in the face of rejection, to comfort them, as they suffer greatly for their faith in Christ. But I also want to seek to apply this to our own lives. So I know that some of you, I know this, I know that some of you have experienced this kind of painful gospel rejection. Your, your life hasn't been threatened but you've experienced real pain and real loss. You've lost close friends. Relationships within your family have become very difficult. So in a very real sense, you have experienced the deep loneliness and isolation of being rejected for your faith in Jesus. Friend, if that's you, I want you to find particular comfort in this morning's text. So don't dismiss what you're hearing because... Well, my rejection isn't as bad as Paul's. 
No, receive the encouragement and comfort of God's word. It's for you too. Notice verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. As Paul is preparing to be flogged, he decides in that moment to divulge a very important piece of information. He's a Roman citizen by birth. And this is a very big deal because Roman citizens by birth could not be tortured without a trial. This meant that Paul couldn't lawfully be flogged as a means of interrogation, hoping to coerce some kind of confession out of him. This activity was illegal. So what happens next? Verse 29. Those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now, don't miss in all the details of Roman citizenship and flogging and what happens here. Don't miss this. In the face of rejection, God sustains and delivers his servant. God is in control. So many times as we've worked our way through Acts, we've seen how God sustains and delivers his people. Of course, this doesn't mean their lives have been free of suffering. Far from it, in fact. But God's sovereign and good power has been displayed through weak and feeble people. Right? The story isn't that Paul faces the angry crowd and in a feat of superhuman strength, he wipes them all out. No, God had to intervene. God had to work in unusual ways, maybe unexpected ways. And he had to do it through the guy and on behalf of the guy who was weak and feeble. This is a very important truth we find all throughout God's word. And it's profoundly hope-giving for all weak and feeble people, which is all of us. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Isn't that a gloriously hopeful truth? I'm sure Paul didn't First, find comfort in this truth when he wrote to the Corinthians. But this was his personal experience and circumstances, like what we find in Acts 22. So our first road sign had the word 
rejection. Our second has the word confrontation. And here's what I want you to see here. When there's a need for confrontation, God strengthens his servant. When there's a need for confrontation, God strengthens his servant. Notice the transition that takes place in verse 30 of chapter 22. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And that moves us right into chapter 23, where we immediately encounter some serious drama. Verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Wow. This is quite the exchange, isn't it? Now, why do you think the high priest responded so violently to Paul's statement in verse 1? I mean, consider what he said again. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What's so bad about that? Well, the most likely explanation is that Ananias understood Paul's words as a claim that though now a Christian, he was still a good Jew, having served God with a good conscience all his life, even to this day. This would have sounded to Ananias like a shockingly arrogant statement, perhaps even blasphemous. He's appalled by what he hears. This is why he commands those standing by Paul to strike him on the mouth. The source of his audacious and heinous claim. So that's why Ananias responds to Paul so strongly. But why then does Paul immediately and passionately respond to a physical assault with what sounds like a verbal assault? Verse 3 again. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. As I studied this response, my response was, Ufta. Not only does Paul pronounce God's judgment on Ananias, but he calls him a whitewashed wall, a, a term Jesus used to call out the hypocrisy and injustice of the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Paul is pointing out that Ananias is supposed to be a just judge, but he is defying the rule of law. Here's what he's saying. You're evil and you're good for nothing. 
Now, friends, I, I couldn't help but think as I read this interaction about the difference. Maybe this came to your mind as we were reading this. About the difference between Jesus and Paul. When each was wrongly accused, how did they respond? Well, we've just read about the account of Paul's response. But listen now and be reminded. I listen to the description of Jesus. This is what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As we read through the scriptures, we often come across imperfect examples. In fact, outside of Jesus, we only come across imperfect examples. And in so doing, we are reminded of the uniqueness and the perfection of Jesus. As great an example as Paul is, brothers and sisters, he is still a sinner, just like you and me. But thanks be to God, because in our spiritual death and helplessness, we needed someone greater than Paul. Someone who would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, our eternal hope isn't found in a man who went toe-to-toe with every powerful bully and put them in their place. Our Savior isn't someone who always had a clever or mocking retort, making sure he always got the last word. Jesus wasn't marked by swagger or bravado. No, this was the way of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then Paul writes to the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Marvel at the perfection of Jesus. 
the one who willingly laid down his life as a ransom for sinners like you and me. Now back to our text. Paul is scolded for his harsh response to Ananias. And then these verses move us toward our third and final road sign. Verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We begin with rejection, move to confrontation, and now finally we arrive at a declaration. And, and here's what I want to give you here when there's an opportunity for declaration God supports his servant God supports his servant now I'm using the word support here in the same way that you would use it if you identify some structure that is weak and falling apart uh, you might say we need to add some additional support here we need something to bolster or uphold the structure, or it won't last. Friends, in his weakness and frailty, Paul needs God to uphold him, to bolster him. Look at verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, as we've seen so many times, Paul senses no, no doubt by the work of the Holy Spirit. He, he senses an opportunity. Within the Sanhedrin, Paul knew there was a theological divide. So he boldly attempts to shift everyone's focus from the charges against him to a fundamental theological issue, the hope of the resurrection. This was clearly something the Sadducees and Pharisees disagreed over. Now look at verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. Uh, this is another way of referring to the intermediate state where the deceased exists as angels or spirits. It's, it's basically saying the Sadducees deny all of this. Pick it up again in verse 8. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and Bring him into the barracks. Well, Paul's response to Ananias 
did not resemble the actions of Jesus, this scene does bring to mind something in the life of Jesus. It, it brings to mind Pilate's announcement that he finds no fault in Jesus. You can hear the echo of it in verse 9. The scribes of the Pharisees announced, we find nothing wrong in this man. Friends, this is, a, this is a pretty remarkable scene. Just take a moment to think about it. Paul's going to be tortured, and then he's not. He is then getting struck in the mouth by order of the high priest. Then he's igniting a fierce argument between the Pharisees and Sadducees by declaring the good news of a future resurrection. Then he's being declared innocent by a group of Pharisees. And finally, he's being whisked away for fear that he will be torn into pieces. So, for a moment, I want you to imagine the emotional and physical state Paul would have been in by this time. Hey, remember, this is not a made-up story. Paul's not a superhero. Imagine the emotional and physical state Paul would have been in by this time. Right? As someone like you and me, don't you think, don't you think he would have wondered if he was alone? Don't you think he would have struggled in some way? Has, has God forgotten about me? Do you think he would have felt weary and weak? We can certainly agree, I would think, that he was in desperate need of encouragement, of support, of being upheld. Well, notice verse 11. following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful, isn't it? Your father knows what you need. Whether it's God's miraculous work of allowing Pastor Dimitri to hear his family pray. Or Paul getting a visit from Jesus. Or that unexpected note or text message you received from a friend when you were struggling for hope and you thought nobody knew. Our God never fails. He is faithful. And he relentlessly encourages and upholds and strengthens and supports his children 
for the work that he has called them to. And that work for each of us is very different. What I love about stories like Pastor Dimitri's and the Apostle Paul's and some of your own stories is that every story of a believer persevering in difficulty is a story that glorifies the God who strengthens and upholds his children. You've seen this in your own life. You've watched a family go through tremendous suffering. You've seen in their suffering a sense of hope and a sense of joy. We don't walk away marveling at their strength, their perseverance. I mean, what's the, or we shouldn't. What's the secret? No, as believers, we understand that it's God who's strengthening them. It's God who is upholding them. And so we, we see that and we glorify God. So here's what I want to do to close. I want to close with the deeply encouraging words of a song that most of you know really well. But if you're like me, you know a lot of songs really well, but in part at particular times and in particular situations, you read the song and you think almost, I didn't know it said that. I needed to hear that. I was reminded of this song when I was reading Jason Harrison's excellent article this week, an article that many of you read as well. So in closing, and in light of all we've talked about this morning, I want you to hear the words to how firm a foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee. O oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so, that soul Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never 
forsake. Let's pray.